Well, again, let's open our copy of God's Word to Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 9. And I would like to reread verses 30 through 37. But before I do, I want to go again to the Lord in prayer and seek His enabling. Our Father, Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. And what we need today is to know Your Word, to know what You have said. And I pray that You would open our hearts and enable us to understand and apply the Word of truth to our own lives today. I pray that you would show us, show us your way and enable me, oh God, to preach in such a way that would point everyone away from me and toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's read these verses once again. In verses 30 through 32, of course, we dealt with last week. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has just told his disciples that he is going to be crucified that he is delivered and I, I just noticed this I don't know how I've missed this after going over this so many times but back in verse number 31 did you notice what Jesus said the son of man is delivered not is going to be delivered but he said the son of man is delivered God has given him to this sin-cursed world as a sacrifice for sin. He is given, he hasn't experienced it yet, but he is delivered. He's turned over to the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that, he is killed. He shall rise the third day. And then the disciples from that point are arguing who should be the greatest among them? And he sat down, verse 35, He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him 
that sent me. So, uh, last week, as, as I said, we talked about the absolute necessity of the cross. And we talked about how that Jesus, uh, from uh, chapter 8 up until this point now, has, uh, has mentioned his suffering on the cross at least uh, four or five times. And and uh, the fifth time here is in verses uh, 30 through 32, where he makes it very clear to his disciples that he has come uh, to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice. He is going to die. He's going to die in the hands of men. And they're going to kill him. And he, after he's killed, he's going to rise again the third day. And they just didn't get it. They didn't understand. They did not understand because they did not understand what kind of a Messiah had been promised to them. Their mindset was still in this political kingdom mindset, and they were still expecting their Messiah. And I know I keep going over this, but uh, it's, it, it's just so much a part. It's so woven into everything that happens here. These disciples have got this political kingdom on their mind, and they're looking for a Messiah that will lead them in the overthrow of Rome and set up Jerusalem and Israel as the head of the nations. And so they uh, still did not understand. They, uh, it wasn't that they didn't understand the words that he was saying. It wasn't that they didn't understand words like uh, son of man. It wasn't that they didn't understand words like delivered or handed over to the hands of men. It wasn't that they didn't understand the words kill. And they didn't understand the words resurrected. That wasn't the problem. It was the whole concept of a suffering Messiah that they didn't get. And so um, uh, maybe it was the why. Why do we need a suffering Messiah? Are we that bad? Now that's a good question, isn't it? Why would we need a, a Messiah who would die for us? Are we really that bad? Is there no other way? Is there no other way for the kingdom of God to be established and advanced than for our Messiah, our King, to die? We used to uh, uh, be in a church that sung a little different songs than what uh, we're used to singing here. They were really all... Uh, uh, glued to uh, southern gospel but there was a few of those songs that were pretty good and one of the songs was uh, the title was 
I am so glad God saves old sinners. And one of the verses of that song says, Was I so bad that I needed forgiveness? Or was I so wrong that I had to be redeemed? Well, I wasn't a thief, but I dwelt in sin's prison. And I was as lost as a sinner could be. Well, that's true, isn't it? We are sinners. And just like the disciples, sometimes we let that get away from us. We let the awareness that we are sinful and if we got what we deserved, not before we got saved, but since we got up this morning, if we got what we deserved, we'd suffer for eternity in hell. They didn't understand the kind of Messiah needed. They needed a Messiah who could do more than just lead them to a political and moral defeat of their oppressors. They needed a Savior. They needed a Savior who can and who will do everything necessary to save them Everything necessary to save us. And we talked some about this sun, last Sunday. And I didn't get uh, 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 finished with it. And so I want to keep going on that. And then we're going to get to this next section in verses 33 and following. About uh, the, the pride of the disciples. Where does that pride come from? Well, it came just like it comes from us in not recognizing how radically and totally helpless we are in the salvation of our own souls. They needed, we need a Savior. And they got a hint. They, they, they had a hint every time they said Jesus' name, didn't they? Because his name means Savior, right? His name means Savior. As a matter of fact, when the angel uh, told them, his name shall be called Jesus, or you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Jewish uh, hearers had no problem with the statement, the sins of the world. What they had a problem with is your sins too. We are sinners. They were sinners and they needed a savior or a deliverer or a rescuer. One who could rescue them from the wrath of God. What they didn't understand is like Art has been uh, preaching to us and teaching to us er, uh, in our uh, teaching hour. How that he has, uh, God has given his prophets these messages of wrath, of his 
anger of the day of wrath that's going to come on them. And every time he'll go down the list of nations and then he comes to Israel and Israel deserves wrath just as desperately as any of the other nations. But Israel never could understand that and the disciples are having a really hard time with that. They needed a Savior that could rescue them from the mighty wrath, the settled, the eternal wrath of Almighty God. And they needed a deliverer, a Savior, a rescuer who could rescue them from sin and all of its bondage and dominion in their lives. They needed to be delivered just like the uh, demoniac in chapter number five that we read about, that poor man who was uh, so uh, demonized that uh, they had tried all of his life to bind him, to help him, to uh, settle him down. And every time he just got worse and worse until it was absolutely hopeless. He's out in the tombs cutting himself and screaming and running naked and everyone's afraid to even go near him. And then Jesus comes and delivers him from the bondage of sin and Satan. They needed a Savior uh, to, who could deliver them and uh, save them from their defilement, just like the leper that we read about over in chapter number one, who uh, came up to Jesus and knelt and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus gets down with him and wraps his arms around him and says, I will be thou clean. The disciples, and not just the disciples, but the other hearers, the other Jewish people around, and ourselves too, we have a really hard time seeing ourselves as defiled, as an old leper. A leper who had to cry unclean. They, and, and listen, that leper wasn't just defiled himself, he was defiling everything he touched. He defiled everybody that came near him. He defiled everything he touched but Jesus touched him and instead of defiling Jesus Jesus cleansed him well they needed a savior that could deliver them from death because just like the scripture says about all of us we are dead in trespasses and in sins, we are dead and condemned to death. Not just dead now in trespasses and sins, but condemned to eternal death in suffering, in uh, the wrath of Almighty God. We're not just sick. We're not just weak, but dead, the scripture says, in trespasses and in sins. I was thinking as I was meditating on this about uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, example that, that he made is probably one of the best I've ever heard when he was talking about how that uh, some people think that we're, uh, 
we're pretty bad off as far as sin is concerned and that we're all sinners and that we all need salvation and uh, but it's uh, uh, and and we're just about as bad off as we can get but we can do not, uh, we can do one percent God has to do 99 percent of the saving but it's up to us to receive Jesus it's up to us to uh, 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 to take that uh, step and do that other 1%. But uh, he said, the fact of the matter is the gospel doesn't say that we're bad off, that we're sick. The gospel says we're dead. He used the illustration of someone in the ocean, in the water that's drowning, and they've gone down for the third time, and and then uh, you just come in, and it's just in the nick of time to rescue them. But he said, that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that the sinner has already gone to the bottom. He's already drowned and he's already dead and there's no hope for him. And then Christ comes and breaks through and reaches down and picks him up and breathes life into him and makes him a new creature in Christ. That's the gospel. And that is what, that is what the disciples, and so often we fail to understand ourselves. They didn't only need a Savior, but they needed a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. I talked about that last week, how that God had had said, there's no more. I'm accepting no more of your sacrifices. Your offerings are not a sweet savor, but they uh, stink in my nostrils. No more sacrifices. But Jesus said, I come to give myself. I will give myself. And he, on the cross, hung there and offered a, a, an acceptable sacrifice unto God. We need a substitute, one to take our place. The disciples didn't realize that. They didn't realize that uh, uh, this whole thing about the law, when God gave the law, do you remember reading about this Back in the book of Exodus, when God gives the law to Israel, to Moses, and, and then he gives it to Israel, along with it, he gives the system of the priesthood and the uh, instructions for the tabernacle and the order of the offerings and the sacrifices. You see, the law was such a high standard it, it, it reveals the very holiness of God. And God expects perfection. He's perfect. And his standard is perfection. And so he gives the law to the children of Israel, not expecting that they would be able to keep it and arrive at that perfection. 
what he intended for them to do. And this is why he gave the priesthood and the sacrifices. He intended for them to see the law and say, oh no, I am undone and run to their flocks and get their very best lamb and take it to the priest and say, take this substitute for me. Because you see, it's either, we're either to be completely perfect or die. And that is die eternally. We needed, we needed a substitute. Someone that could live out that perfect standard of righteousness. And then bear our sins away. We didn't only need a savior and a sacrifice and a substitute, but we needed a redeemer as well. A redeemer. The word redeem means to purchase. It brings to mind the marketplace. And particularly in the case of uh, what we're talking about, it's a slave market. It... Uh, it brings to mind a slave market where, uh, where slaves, people who are in bondage, are auctioned off. And, and a redeemer is one who would go and buy a slave in the market. There's three words in our New Testament, three Greek words that are translated uh, redeemed, redeemer. Or uh, re redeem in our New Testament. One is in Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9. It's agorazo. And uh, Revelation 5. This is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture in the entire word of God. You see in Revelation chapter number 5. Here is... Uh, a, a wonderful thing of Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, being found worthy to open the seven-sealed book. But in chapter 5 and verse number 9, the Bible says, They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou, thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. You have purchased us. In the slave market, you've gone into the slave market and purchased us, purchased us by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And then there's another word, ex agorazo, and that word means to buy out of the slave market. To buy out of the slave market. So he didn't just go into the slave market to get us, but he brought us out of the slave market. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 13. I might as well read this. This is we don't have anything better to do, do we? Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 13. He said, Christ hath redeemed us. From the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. There's that substitution again. Having been made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. So Jesus 
hung on the tree in our place to redeem us out of the curse. And then verse chapter 4. In chapter 4 and verse number, verses number 4 and 5, listen. When the fullness, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So he has redeemed us. Not only has he come into the market, but he's redeemed us out of the market. And then there's another Greek word that is translated redeemed. And that is the word lutro. And it is uh, used in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. And here's what it means. He didn't just go into the market to redeem us. He didn't just redeem us and bring us out of the market, but he set us free. It means to set you free. And look at how Paul uses this in Titus chapter number 2. This is something for us to consider sometime. I won't spend much time on it, but listen. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. You get that? He saved us out of sin. <laughs> he set us free from sin. You and I, as children of God, I'm not saying that we could even ever be sinlessly perfect, but I am saying that we could uh, have more victory over sin than we are experiencing. Would you agree with that? And he has given us this ability to to say no, to resist the devil, to resist sin. Not only did we need a Savior and a sacrifice and a substitute and a Redeemer, but we needed a justifier. Because you see, our problem's not just moral. Our problem is not just uh, in our deadness, but we are active sinners. We're, we have a legal problem. It's a legal problem. We have disobeyed the will of God. We have disobeyed the law of God. And, our, uh, and we're guilty. I mean, the Bible tells us that we are guilty sinners before God. And what can you do about your guilt? What can you do about it? You see, God has uh, worked a way for us, has devised a way for him to justify guilty sinners. And in justifying guilty sinners, he, he would have to, because he's a holy God and a just God, if he's going to justify guilty sinners, he can't just sweep their sin under the rug and play like it didn't happen, right? Someone has to come up with a way to justify sinners and for God to be able to still be just and holy. And so, in order to be uh, uh, righteous in justifying sinners, he has to keep in mind the ruined condition of man and his own righteous character. 
And so what he did was he sends his son to live out perfect righteousness in an active obedience and then in passive obedience give himself as a substitute on the cross and let the justice of God be poured out in full on him. And so now he is both just and the justifier. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 3 again. I'll say this uh, again. That's some of the most beautiful scripture in the entire word of God. But uh, uh, let, me, let me tell you a little something about justification and about the legal aspect of it. I'm going to get to this next section. It may be next Sunday, but I'm going to get to it, Lord willing. Warren Wiersbe's got the best definition of justification that I've ever seen. He said, justification is an act, not a process. There are no degrees of justification. Each believer has the same right standing before God. Also, justification is something that God does, not man. No sinner can justify himself before God. Most important... Justification does not mean, now listen to this, that God makes us righteous, but that he declares us righteous. It's a legal declaration. Just as a uh, judge would declare not guilty. Justification is a legal matter. God puts the righteousness of Christ on our record in the place of our own sinful record and nobody can change that record. Pretty good, huh? Mm -hmm. So here's what we got. Justification is an act of God. There are no degrees of justification. It's not like sanctification. You know, sanctification is a process, right? And uh, I would say without fear of contradiction that uh, probably every one of you are light years ahead of me in sanctification. But as far as justification is concerned, we're all on the same level. And not only that, justification is different from forgiveness because with forgiveness, God's taking something away, right? He's taking away our sin. But in justification, he's giving us something. He's imputing to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when we stand before him, we stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. <coughs> Well, I better hurry. We need the justifier. We also needed pardon. And that means forgiveness. Needed someone to remove our sins, to take them away. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I could 
spend some time on pardon, but I won't. I want to get to this next one. And, and I know this is not an exhaustive uh, uh, account of all that Jesus did for us, but, uh, but he also reconciled us to God. We needed reconciliation. Can you understand the disciples' mindset now when, how, how could they assume or even understand that they needed to be reconciled to God because they thought the very fact that God's giving them the kingdom means that they are all right. How could they see themselves as enemies of God? Reconcile, reconciliation means that uh, there's some parties that are at odds, right? Two parties are at odds and something needs to be done to reconcile them. And with us, the, the issue is, is more than we can even imagine. And the disciples had the same problem. God is God. He's Jehovah. As Art said this morning, he is the I am, the one who always is, always was, always will be. He's never any better and he's never any worse. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only self-existent being that there is and he is the creator of everything else and all else is uh, down below this great gulf. He's creator and we're creation. But not only that, we're sinful, which has created even a greater gulf between us so that holy God could not reach down to sinful man. And that's why we needed Jesus. That's why Jesus came. That's why he kept trying to drum this in to this. I, I shouldn't have said trying. This, he's, he, he has an agenda. He's doing what he came to do. And he's drumming this in to the disciples' head. And, and he, he has inspired through the Holy Spirit. He's inspired these things to be uh, recorded and preserved for us. But uh, but let me let me read you a wonderful passage of scripture. Some of the most beautiful scripture in the entire Bible. Job, chapter number nine. I've probably pointed this out to you before, but Job, he's responding to Bildad, and his you know his friends have been telling him, you know, the reason. You're in the mess you're in because you're such a sinner and you deserve it and all that. And if you were really right with God. And listen to what Job says here in verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. The word daysman there is an umpire or one who can take both sides. One that can lay his hand on Job and one who can lay his hand on God. 
He said, that's what I need. Mm -hmm. That's what I don't have. And then Jesus came. He's so much God that he can take a hold of God's hand. And he's so much man that he can reach down and take hold of man's hand and reconcile. Bring us together. Bring us to God. We're reconciled. Romans chapter 5, some of the most beautiful scripture in the entire world. I, I just, all this, all these verses are just so, so precious to me. But uh, Romans chapter 5, let me read this to you. Beginning verse number six, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall have, be saved by his life. That's our privilege that's our testimony we've been reconciled to God and so Paul could say in chapter 5 in verse number uh, 1 when he began this chapter therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You, you, you see what we've got? We can come. We've got access. Come into the very presence of God. Aren't you glad? We ought to make noises like we're glad sometimes. <laughs> Father, thank you for your truth. I, I pray that you'd help me as I get through this and go into the next uh, few verses. Please enable us to rightly divide your word and enable us to see your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.